Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And today we're going to be speaking with a really good friend of ours. We're really excited about this one. Today, we're going to be speaking with Chiquita Hall-Jackson. Chiquita is the founder of Hall-Jackson and Associates PC. Chiquita has a really impressive personal and professional background and a really cool story to tell, so I'm, I'm really excited to hear it today. Chiquita received her BA in political science and public law with a minor in communication studies from Northern Illinois University. She earned her JD from Southern University Law Center, where she served as SULC's law clinic extern, and she studied abroad in the International Criminal Court and Constitutional Law. In addition, she worked as a mediator in the Louisiana Attorney General's office. Chiquita has had her own practice pretty much since graduating in 2013, and her practice, her areas of practice include representing and advocating on behalf of victims of discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, as well as advocating for whistleblowers, and she also has a substantial residential real estate practice. Welcome, Chiquita. Thank you guys for having me. I got to say, actually, before we really get into it, we're doing this on Zoom. You've won the best background award so far. Your entire background is just like family <laughs> photos. And I love it. It even Thank says you. family. <laughs> Thank you. Usually we get an office or we get like nothing or somebody's couch. You actually, I, I imagine you did not decorate your wall for us, but it looks nice. Now. <laughs> it looks well, really thanks nice. for noticing it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. You guys don't get to see it, but we get to see it. We, we promise Chiquita <laughs> this is not a visual podcast. Okay. So Chiquita, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you've got a really cool personal story. And I, I know when we just gloss over somebody's biography, it doesn't really give the full 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 story so tell us a little bit more about yourself that you think people ought to know sure so i was an employee for years prior to starting my own practice and that included the legal arena for years i started off as an intern through the mayor daily kids start program and with that program we had several law firms that was open to the idea of letting high school students and also college undergrad students come in and serve as interns for the summer in legal capacities. And with that, I took the opportunity. I started off as a file clerk. I was on the floor filing um, documents and served as a file clerk for a couple of summers in a row. And then essentially I started with Dorothy Brown, clerk of the circuit court immediately after college. And I started stayed with her for a year and a half as a clerk. And I ran into an old buddy and, from high school and he let me know his firm was hiring. And there's great opportunities for advancement there. I applied, resigned from Dorothy Brown and went to the law office of Stamos and Trucco. And there I served originally as the law clerk. And then I moved my way up to the paralegal. And then unfortunately in 2008, when the market crashed and everyone laid off as our first recession as you know the age group we're in, I end up getting laid off. And as a result, I could, I, during all this time, I was applying for the LSAT back and forth. I just decided to buckle down and really study for the LSAT. But prior to actually getting accepted to law school, I just applied and applied for multiple jobs and I never got the jobs. For whatever reason, I didn't get most interviews. I got a few interviews during this time and it's between 2008 and 2010. August, 2010, I got my acceptance letter to Southern University Law Center in Baton Rouge. And with that, I went straight into law school and I still had yet to receive a job offer. And so I took the opportunity to go to Louisiana, go to law school. 
And backtrack to say during that time, it was very depressing to know that I worked this hard on my resume and I built myself up in this particular company and I never got the opportunity to even get an interview at some of the firms I was applying for. So when I successfully got out of law school, took the bar my first try, got a pass to the bar. So I was very excited about that. So I applied for two positions. One was with Chase and one was with CTA in their legal departments. And I did not get the positions. And I remember the depressing state that I had back um, in 2008 through 2010, trying to get a job. And because of that, I just said, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to make myself upset. This is a great accomplishment. And I knew what I was worthy of. So with that, I started my own law practice, and my first case was taking a good friend's brother's case the day after Christmas 2013. And by 2014, I was in March of 2014, I should say, I was in a brick and mortar, and things have been going well ever since. Yeah, I think since in the last seven years, you've gone from just yourself to now like a gigantic team of folks. <laughs> yes. I've, and I've, it's seen, scary. I've, seen, I've seen her team. It's huge. She's got like 27 people working for it. No, I'm kidding. It's, but, you, but it's you literally of five of us. It's yeah. five of us right now. And that's not even including, I, I outsource my bookkeeping and I outsource my marketing and all that stuff. So, but yeah, I'm very proud um, of what has been accomplished so far. It's also scary. It's also very scary. My favorite part about all of that is it kind of just reminds me, it's an epitome of how you kind of operate. Like you're always doing these different things. You're meeting a bunch of people. And this is basically, you're working in a court, you network with someone to get a paralegal spot that you move all the way up. Financial crisis hits, you go to Baton Rouge. I don't know if you have family down there. And then you come back here into Chicago and build up a practice that goes from one person, Christmas 2013, to now a team of folks seven years later. It's awesome. Thank you. But yeah, Baton Rouge, it was very scary because I knew no one. No, my family never had even traveled to Baton Rouge. So we didn't even know what it looked like. And so it was very scary. Well, that's, I think, I don't know. I think that's brave. I, 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 yeah, no, I think that's really brave. You, you mentioned a lot about, and it's funny because I remember coming out of, you and I graduated at the same time. Amit, I think you were only a year ahead of us, right? So yeah, I'm 2012. So I'm oh, well. the old one on the group. <laughs> but I think we I think we all remember what it was like to graduate right at the tail end of that financial crisis when there were mm -hmm. so many extra, you know, that was when all those law schools, all, all those law schools got sued for increasing their admission rates and charging more in 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 fees, knowing that the legal market was constricting, not expanding at that point, and they were going to be spitting out more lawyers than there were jobs to be had. So the fact that you were able to just say, you know what, I'm done being somebody else's employee and nobody's going to make this happen but me is is impressive because I, I did not have those guts. I was still, you know, <laughs> crawling, looking for somebody to hire me. So I remember that time. That was Yeah, yeah. it was very stressful. I'll say that much. I remember just being like, just the entire period from 09 to 12 to 13. Mm -hmm. It was uh, not a fun part of my life for a lot of reasons. Very rough. And luckily, um, at that time, they extended unemployment a few times. Yeah. So that was that was the lesson. Chiquita, one of the things I want to come back to, just something you shared, you were kind enough to share with me one day, is you said that you were the first person in your family to attend college. Is that did I get that right? Yeah, my mom actually went to NIU prior to me. She had me actually on college, a college campus, which was NIU. I was the first to go to law school. Oh, wow. I want Sorry. to say professional school overall. But yeah, the program that I was in, TRIO, is for first-generation students. Got it. What is TRIO? Do you mind me asking? Sure. So it's part of Student Support Services. It's a government-funded program, and it specializes and is set up to help 
uh, first generation law I mean, undergrads and just college students matriculate through the college program and get out. You know, a lot of people going to college that they don't have the family support, their family never been through something like that. Then a lot of them temp typically drop out within the first year or so. So they pretty much help you and they provide scholarships and different things like that. Resources, tutoring and all that. And I imagine the support system, I mean, you mentioned like a lot of those students, if you don't have family members who've gone through that, you don't have somebody to, to kind of, you know, help you learn the ropes, know what to watch out for when things get hard. Taking that and going back to your own experience, sort of that, that low moment or that low couple years you had where you, you spent all that energy putting a resume together and applying and you had a really good background and you still weren't getting jobs. What challenges do you think you faced in life in starting a law practice, uh, going this route in the way you did that maybe others have not? Can you talk a little bit about why you think that was challenging, why those challenges were there and, and how you overcame that? I can. The, the obvious one is relationships. And as you just spoke about the idea that if I have an uncle or a cousin or even my dad, which I saw a lot in law school, who actually were attorneys or at least had a friend that was an attorney, I had some, they had someone to rely on. I didn't have that. The same thing with coming out the network, who would my network be? And I'm gonna tell you now in the African-American community, not only do we have the barriers when it comes to the workplace and networking and trying to get our peers to see us as, you know, as equals in the workplace, we also have barriers with our families. This is fresh for them. No one in their family did this or achieved such level of success. And so with that, we get a lot of, pushback, you know, from our families, um, because they don't know how to dress you. They don't, they think you think you're here and, you know, or, you know, there's things they don't know how to approach you, talk to you and things like that. So with that, you're not only dealing with this battle in the workplace and trying to get recognized in the legal industry, you're also dealing with it in your households and your overall family structure. So that was definitely one of the major challenges. And like I said, once again, the network, it wasn't a strong, Mark, uh, Max recently introduced me to this idea that there is these programs I forgot what they're called they're quick but pretty much you know there's a network support where it's a team of 10 and we all going to refer business to each other in the african-american community we don't have that it's more so crab in the barrel i'm not going to refer you anything because how i'm going to eat how i'm going to feed my family if i give you too much of my you know referral list and things like that so that's the biggest hurdle honestly what i guess to follow up on that what how were you able to overcome all of that? Because you, you've described you really didn't have a network. You had some familial challenges. And I, I think you said it out loud. I don't think it's a secret. There's obviously racial barriers as well. So what, what allowed you to get around that? Because, I mean, you, to go from I don't know anybody, I don't have a job offer coming out to you've got five people working with you, you've got a well-established practice, and I will say you've got a very good reputation. I went to you for advice when my partner and I were setting up shop. How did you get to that point? Because you, you, you've described a lot of barriers there. Well, and just to add one thing to that, you're, you're going from college to law school to opening and running a business successfully. So it's, you're stacking a lot of stuff on top of each other. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it is. Essentially, honestly, it's just faith. I don't know how many people, you know, listeners have a religious base source with them, but 
honestly faith, just keeping the faith that it's something bigger and better out there. And my law school family, I end up going to HBCU, which is a historical black college, which I didn't even know I applied for, for law school. And so when I got there, I found out that it was, but it was great to just see other people like me who actually had this drive and wanted to do big things and to know that their parents actually achieved that and they shared that with me. I get to go home with them on um, breaks or on weekends, we'll take a drive because I was in the South and everybody lived in that Southern Alabama, Texas and all that stuff. And just to see that their parents were so successful and doing things outside the you know box. And honestly, my Nila family, to be honest, my Nila family, I credit you guys. I don't care where I talk, who I talk to, where I talk about it, my Nila family. If I have a question, there's no one in Nila, whether that's local or national, that I can't reach out to. That's where I got a lot of my templates from, a lot of my, you know, courage to go ahead and, hey, don't stop at the MSJ. Keep going. You know, you, you were successful on this MSJ. Brian Woods, Max, I'm in. If I called you guys, Jason, anybody, you guys were there to assist me. And so that is definitely so. Although I didn't come in with a strong network, Brian Woods met me at Kent for some CLE and he encouraged me to join Neela, Illinois. And ever since then, I cannot say nothing bad about Neela, Illinois or Neela National. You guys have been awesome and my success. I'm smiling and that a little referrals. <laughs> it is. I'm smiling a little bit because Brian Wood also got me more involved in Neela, Illinois. Brian's the one he put out a question on the listserv one time, and I think it was something obscure I dealt with like a week before. Otherwise, I would never have known that answer. And so Brian and I ended up talking and at the end of the call. He goes, and by the way, the national conference is coming this mm -hmm. year in Chicago. Essentially, there's no excuse for you not to show up. So show up. And, you know, that's how I got to meet nice folks like yourselves. So the yeah. two of you. So it's Brian's good. We love like Brian. Yeah. We do. We're going to get Brian on here someday too. So I guess going back to that a little bit, you described this crabs in a barrel sort of people climbing over each other, you know, coming out of school from a Southern university, um, historically black college, not necessarily having a Chicago network there. Where did you find clients? Like, how did you get this up? You know, cause it's one thing to say, well, I have faith and you know, it clearly that's what keeps you going, but still somebody has got to bring those feet in the door. Right. So where did they come from? So the clients originally came from Facebook, honestly. Uh, a lot of people watch me go from Shakita from undergrad. So you build up that network on Facebook from undergrad and just matriculating. But they knew I was one of the only people, honestly, that went to law school on their timeline. And so I, as I was matriculating through law school, I had people reaching out to me and say, hey, I have this with my family. I have this accord and this and that. Do you mind? And so a lot of them was just lined up waiting on me to get done. And I want to refer you to this person. I want to refer you to that person. And with that, we essentially just start building that up. And then once you serve as a client or two, they are happy with your service and they end up referring you to people. And then from there, like I said, once I got involved with Neela, we ended up had to stop taking calls at some point because it was just like nonstop, either referrals from Neela or find a lawyer feature on Neela, Illinois and Neela National. We just started getting a lot of clients. Can you talk a little bit about, so the experiences you've had in experiencing these barriers to entry, did you set out to do discrimination work or I guess anti-discrimination work in, in your area of practice? Did you go in knowing this is something I want to do or did it just sort of happen that way? It's so funny. Um, going to law school, I think most African-Americans, we all want to go in and do the criminal thing because, you know, we, we understand that a lot of our people are behind bars that don't deserve to be behind bars. Um, but I did the criminal. I just did not like it. <laughs> 
I did family law. I did not like it. But every blue moon, I would get someone with a discrimination claim. And I had one sexual harassment claim that I really enjoyed. It was successful. We survived motion for summary judgment. And I also had my very first one was the age discrimination claim. And I, but I kept getting these older clients who was this close to retirement and they was getting terminated for unsubstantiated reasons. But unfortunately, either they was management, whatever situation they the union would protect them. And so with that, I ended up falling in love with the employment law arena because I just felt like who are protecting these individuals? And I felt like that was something that I should be doing. And eventually I just something I'd love to do now and set out to do. Is your work then primarily focused on discrimination matters or do you do other aspects of employment law too? I do mostly discrimination work, but we do with that, we love a retaliation claim attached to it, a whistleblowing claim attached to it, and sexual harassment claims. So yeah, but majority of it, because, and they'll let you know, I you I looked on the listserv, I did the find a lawyer feature, and you were the only African-American there. And so I would, you know, because I discriminate, I felt discriminated against, so I was in this pressure work environment, I'm looking for African-American to represent me. So that goes back to your previous question. That's also how we get a lot of our clients. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you've, you're one of your biggest victories, I think maybe it was in the defamation libel space. That is correct. Tell us a little bit about what that case was like. So in this particular case, we had an employee who was an African-American. He started in a construction, he's in a construction arena and he started at the bottom, what they consider as a laborer. You go to any construction site, someone has to pick up all the trash off the floor and do things like that. So that title was called a laborer. And he served as a laborer for years and his supervisor who trained him and kind of nudged him, hey, let's advance you throughout this company was a white guy. They was about the same age, a little bit, maybe, you know, a couple of years off each other. But this guy, he he pushed him and helped him, held his hand and he matriculated throughout the company. But then the guy ended up going to a different company. I believe my client went to a different company. And so long story short, they both went to various different companies in the construction arena. And my client made his way all the way up until the safety manager, which he oversaw any construction site based on the safety of OSHA guidelines and different state and federal regulations as the safety guy. And so by the time these two guys met back up, my client was now going to be the guy who supervises this guy who held his hand years ago to come up the ranks. And the guy just didn't like it. And my professional opinion, it was due to his race. There was no way this black guy is now going to be over me, telling me what to do. And as a result, in the meeting, when he found out, they announced in the meeting that he was going to be the supervisor and the manager to oversee the safety portion. And he's going to meet with you on Tuesday so that you guys can walk your construction site and make sure your construction site is in code and up to regulation, and uh, regulation up to code, I'm sorry. And as a result of that, the guy burst out some stuff about my client that was very defamatory towards his character and his professional career. And as a result, my client was kicked off that project. But because he was kicked off that project, he essentially lost his job because that was the project they had worked so hard for him to work on. And they really didn't have any additional work for him. And he just slowly started losing accounts back to back. And the hardest thing was trying to prove that all this was related to this one claim. But he ended up being very successful and he got right shy of $900,000. And unfortunately, you know, he can't go back and work with that particular company anymore, but he's able to still to this day go out and work. So we make sure we structure his agreement where he can essentially be an employee of that company. But if they are the subcontractors on the case, 
on a project that he could work with them. And that was some hard because they just wanted no, no dealings with this guy. But he, he pretty much taught us the construction world. Like there's no way I can agree to this agreement because that excludes me for any project. It's, it's a major construction company and they are hiding in Chicago. They're popping up construction sites all over. So if you're telling me I can't even be a, uh, in a relationship with a subcontractor of these people, that kind of mess over my money. So the judge saw future wages as well. And that's how his verdict, I mean, his, you know, judge a dollar amount was the way it was. That's really interesting. Cause a, lo- a lot of times these agreements will have no rehire type provisions. And so in a lot of industries, you know, it is what it is, I guess, but here basically would, yeah, kick him out of the entire industry if he can't yeah. subcontract. Yeah. So yeah, but- that's what he, like, he went crazy when he saw that language. Like, there's no way you're telling me I'll never work again in the city of Chicago. Well, and I think that's one of the things we always run into, right, as employers never want to see this person again, never want, never want them coming into contact with any of their workers. If they're going to work at a job site of any kind that any of their workers might walk by for lunch each day, they don't want you going there, right? So mm-hmm. it's impressive you were able to not only get them such a high, such a high number, because our, I mean, I think all three of us know that is not a common outcome in employment law. Um, we don't <laughs> it do- is that. That's really impressive. And I, it highlights, too, the intersection between discrimination and defamation because yeah. I think it's you know it's it's a tight rope to to go through but you know it it is intertwined I'm sure what he said that was false was because of his of the, your client's race yeah and and I don't think they had you know they there was no need to hide it you know because at the end of the day it wasn't a discrimination claim and it was just like blatant disrespect because there's no way this guy who's black he that the the conversations that took place had the n-word in it he also told him hey let me take you out of school where there's black people shooting at each other it was just like you can tell their race was a key issue here but unfortunately that wasn't an element for us to prove and so but we still was successful in proving the idea that you know pretty much this guy despite him doing this because of the race he he did this to harm the client and it actually resulted in him being out of work uh, for a minimum of three years, if not more. Well, I think one thing with defamation claims is yeah. you can try to get punitive damages. And so mm-hmm. there, you know, being a racist probably doesn't help the defendant from a punitive standpoint. So yeah, that's why we was reaching for millions because I, I believe a jury definitely would have saw some there to give some punitives and the employer's behavior as a result of what went down. But unfortunately, we still, like I said, we, there was no discrimination claim attached to it. It was all defamation, but it was you know still successful for him. Well, one of the things Ahmed and I have talked about, we talked on our first episode about this, but what can be so challenging in proving not just race discrimination, but any kind is... It is so rare that somebody says out loud the bad thing they're doing. And I don't know that anybody was lucky in that situation, right? Because your client suffered a lot, you know, and lost out on opportunities. He was lucky he had a good lawyer, but he was lucky that at least they were able to catch the person. Somebody was there to vouch for what was said. Because so often, what I always find in these straight disparate treatment cases is just so challenging to actually even establish that something negative was said. Because I mean, how many times have you had a client walk in and say, I've got a list of witnesses a mile long, and if they all still work for the company, nobody's going to back you. And then also, (laughs) these companies have gotten very sophisticated and not saying out loud the bad thing you're going to do, right? So proving that this happened to this person, obviously, again, this didn't end up being a race 
a discrimination case, but essentially that this happened to this person because he was black. It's to your credit you were able to get it that far or, or, or such a good result for him because those are not easy cases to take. They're not. We actually have one that just came into us, a referral from the Henderson Park, which is essentially the Cochran firm. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this guy, he, <laughs> the stuff that we saw is crazy. Now, this is where, you know, they let their guards down. It's a, it's a labor um, case. He was, well, union case, I should say. He worked for a particular union and the manager that's over was Hispanic and he felt the need to call my client all type of bad words. And he also got screenshots of black people with comments, you know, little fingerings. It is, you know, some companies and I find it in the construction industry, the I'm not gonna even say low wage workers, because these guys make great money, but it's just loose talk. And what the defendants have been able to disguise it as is shop talk. It's like the third case I had like that, where they're just blankly talking and it's disrespectful and it's grabbing, you know, the P word, whatever word you can think of, it's all out there. And it's pretty much defined by the defendants as shop talk. That's how they talk around here. So it's like a mutation of like the yeah. locker room talk phrase from yeah. 16. Yeah. yeah, that was exactly where my mind went to. And it, it it's almost like they're saying, oh, well, yeah, it's bad, but everybody talks that way. So your client yes. really can't be offended, which is sort of preposterous, right? It's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly what opposing counsel told me. Like, he engaged in this too. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I think you're, I mean, it's interesting you say that because that's one of the common defenses we hear, right? Is, oh, your guy was laughing along or it was a joke and he laughed yeah. too, right? But, you know, a lot of times it's uncomfortable situation. You know, if you don't need black person there and they got the black jokes going on, what do you do? You act a fool and then you lose your job, right? You, you say something back. So you have to, most situations, kind of laugh it off. So, yeah, it's, it's a sticky situation. Do you find that's challenging going up against, say, a white lawyer who maybe hasn't been this is a stupid way to say it, but they're not a black person in America, so they've never had to navigate a workplace as the one person of their race. And so to them, it's, well, your guy didn't complain. He was laughing along. What's the defect, you know, the in the hostile work environment analysis, right? He's not subjectively offended. Have you ever found yourself in that situation where you're walking a white lawyer through it and saying, yeah, I don't think you, you I don't think you understand what's happening here. I get it all the time. And I tell Anybody I talk to, I, I, I prefer a white male across the table, honestly, than a white female. I don't know. I think it's something that they're just trying to prove to their employer so they can advance. But very rarely does a white female try to get it. It's more so like jam-packed. This is this is our stance. You know, they're not trying to get it versus a white male say, hey, I kind of get it. You know, they might not understand the stream that the black person went through in this workplace, but they, they I guess they may have been around it long enough to see what it looks like. But, you know, I always say I prefer the white male across the table for me because they are somewhat more sympathetic. If not, they know how to play the game and act like they are versus a, a white female. They just... They just don't get it. They they really don't. And which which pees me off because if it comes to women rights, and if we have like a, a sex discrimination claim attached to it, they can understand the women's rights a little bit better than they can understand the idea of my client who's a complaining about race discrimination. And that goes both. I have represented Hispanics before, I have and African Americans, and they just don't get it. They really don't. Is there anything else? I guess just to kind of finish on this topic of just the challenges of bringing discrimination cases and what have you, is there anything you wish you could communicate to clients before going down the road of these cases or just that you think 
because in a perfect world, we're going to have non-employment lawyers who listen to this. That's certainly Amit in my dream. I don't know that anyone will be, <laughs> who knows, maybe nobody's listening and we're just all talking to each other now. But, you know, is there some takeaway that you'd love to communicate just about this line of work or before somebody goes down the path of taking these cases on something that maybe you wish you'd been told or, or that you wish you could tell people or kind of communicate to them? For an employee who's deciding that they want to go after their employer, you know that it's hard. You know, it, you're going after your employer, you're going after a team, a corporation. They have the money to fund their attorneys and nine times out of 10, you do not. But with that, if you have a passion behind it and you know that I have people say it all the time, it's not about the money, it's the principle, the way they treated me. I think you should let that lead you more so the dollar amount. And also do know that you need witnesses. <laughs> you need witnesses to be successful. And you also need documentation. And those are the main things that I see that's kind of frustrating that people think you attorney can just take their words, but you don't have any support. You need the actual witnesses and you need the actual documentation to back up your claims. That's the biggest frustration and the takeaway that I want people to know. And as far as opposing counsel, like I said, ultimately, I, I want to see more people of color in this arena. I, I can go to court on family law, I can go to court on criminal law, personal injury, any other kind of law. And it's kind of diverse in the representation. But over here, it's our people who's been discrimination in the workplace, discriminated against in the workplace. And essentially, they have very few people that look like them that represent them. And so that's one thing I made sure my our firm looks like. I don't care what's your background, where you come from, you have someone and God willing, if I can continue to build it, you will have someone in every pocket that looks just like you. And that includes Caucasian women over 40. <laughs> you know, I got two Caucasian ladies now that work for me and they're both way over 40. So we are, we're trying to prove diversity matters, diversity and inclusion in the workplace matter, regardless of what arena you're in. Yeah, it's, if you go to a lot of law firm websites, you see a lot of the same people on the on the firm website and the pictures and everything. And it's so irritating. And the biggest, I, I talk to Max about this all the time, the biggest frustration is you have this team, like you just said, they all look the same, right? But those are the ones who has the multi-million dollar discrimination claim. Like, and these people couldn't relate to you if they wanted to, you know? And so... I want more of us, um, and I'm not just saying African-American, just people of different religion, races. I have, you know, it just needs to be covered. You know, I got people come in, they talk about how they was treated as a Muslim. I know I have a Muslim that works with me and he needs to take his breaks for his prayers and things like that. But we also have, you know, so that's the type of people that's ignored in the workplace and mistreated in the workplace. But they should also have someone of that background to represent them in court. Yeah, I think it's really valuable to have a diversity of experiences in a workplace because it allows you to be much more effective in terms of not just relating to your clients, but having different ideas. Yeah. Um, so in a similar vein to Max's last question, if you could go back to 2013 and give yourself business advice, what advice would that be? Get an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be my number one thing. I don't care how poor you thought you was, get an accountant. Definitely, that'd be one thing. And follow your heart, follow your heart. Like I, I did a lot of stuff because I felt sorry for people I and mean, I just wanted to help these people. But at the end of the day, it, it led to this, which I, I wake up every morning excited to go fight the good fight for, on behalf of workers. Okay, awesome. So we do have one more question for you. At the end of these episodes, we're doing a shout out of the week. So it can be anything. It can be a book, TV show, person, anything you just want to shout out and just say this was great. 
I feel like right now during these COVID times, we just need more joy. So anything you got. This is the, is the number one show I recommend. It's just, it touches every issue, every race, everything that you can ever think of. And I think in the spirit of employment law and diversity and inclusion, This Is Us is definitely a show. It comes on Tuesday nights um, at 8 p.m. on NBC. And hopefully uh, we get at least a few more episodes. <laughs> No, my wife enjoys it. So I, I always, everybody who watches it seems to cry the whole episode and enjoy it. Yes. So. It's a tearjerker. It is definitely a tearjerker. <laughs> I haven't watched it. It's on my list. So I'll, I'll, I'll bump it up. Yes, you'll love it. How can people find you? You can find us at www.hall-jackson and associates. The word and is spelled out and associates spelled out, um, plural.com. Our office number is 885-WHISTLE. Or you can simply call 312-255-7105, 312-255-7105. Well, Chiquita, thank you so much for coming on. Amit and I are both proud to call you a friend, and I'm proud to call you both a friend and a mentor because you were kind enough to go to me as my partner and I were starting out and give us advice, and I'm eternally grateful with that. So, Thank you guys for having me. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.